Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Shootout at Warbird, written by Edwin Booth. Son against Father for Rangeland Justice What son could draw against his own father? That's the question Neil Wallace had to ask himself. Neil admired his father, King Wallace, for building up the biggest ranch in the territory and defending it with guns blazing against rustlers and robbers. But Neil knew the days of the Wild West and the taking of law into one's own hands were gone. Yet he was positive his father wouldn't be restrained by any scruples. Now his father was planning to dam the river that supplied water to all the valley ranches and charged them rates that would keep every man-jack in debt to him forever. Neil was determined to stop King, even if it took bullets to do it. But first he had to tell his father why a son might have to turn against his own blood. It's because you're trying to do something no man has a right to do. You're trying to make slaves out of free men and you're not going to get away with it. Your scheme is going to blow sky high, and you along with it. And with those words, Range War exploded in all its bloody fury, setting off a dynamite relay of greed, revenge, and gunpowder temper that threatened to destroy Neil and the ranchers he defended. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Shootout at Warbird. Chapter 1 The grimy three-car train groaned around a curve and straightened out for the last pull into Kingvale, its whistle sounding mournfully across the unbroken Wyoming landscape. A cloud of black smoke drifted past the window, blotting out the view, and Neil turned away to find the Englishman watching him with a trace of amusement in his glance. As their eyes met, the Englishman rose to his feet holding on to the back of the seat with his left hand to brace himself against the swaying of the car. I've enjoyed your company, Mr. Wallace, he said. Come and see me when you get time. He held out his right hand. Neil took the hand in his own rope-calloused fingers. I'll do that, Mr. Davenport. You've made the trip a lot pleasanter. He got to his feet, spreading his legs to keep from being thrown off balance. A long train ride can get mighty monotonous with nobody to talk to. Agreed. The Englishman was smiling, but his smile faded and he glanced out the window thoughtfully, then back at Neil. The time may come, Mr. Wallace, when you long for monotony. It's a pretty scarce article here in the valley. The smile returned. At any rate, I hope we can be friends, even though... The last of his words were blotted out by the screech of the iron wheels as the train ground to a stop, and Neil found himself wondering what Davenport had been about to say. There had been a somber tone to the words, as though the man had been about to warn him of something. But the Englishman had already started toward the vestibule, so Neil turned to the back of the car picked up his war bag in his left hand, and used his right to swing his saddle across his back. Walking back up the aisle, Neil had to duck to look out the windows. There was a group of men lounging in the shade of the depot, a shabby little building which apparently hadn't been painted in the eight years he'd been away, except for the word Kingvale, that is, which had been added in his absence, although the name he was used to, Horseshoe Bend, 
was still faintly discernible beneath the new paint. The alteration didn't please him, indicating as it did that his father, King Wallace, still held the town in his power. Reaching the platform, he looked up to see that Davenport had stopped to speak to the men by the depot, all of whom seemed to know him. One by one, they turned their eyes from Davenport to Neil, their expressions becoming watchful, perhaps suspicious. Neil frowned, puzzled at their wariness. One of the loungers he recognized, a smallish man by the name of Hub Talbert. He let his gaze move down the line, finding the same expression on all five faces. It occurred to him that they were waiting for him to make the first move, so he put down the saddle, held out his right hand, and stepped toward Talbert, bringing his lips into a smile. Howdy, Mr. Talbert, he said. I guess you wouldn't remember me. I'm Neil Wallace. Talbert pushed himself away from the building and looked up at Neil uncertainly. Neil remembered him as a shifty sort of man and saw immediately that he hadn't changed in eight years except to get more round-shouldered. Now Talbert glanced uneasily at the other four men, then started to hold out his hand. Sure, Neil, I remember. Before he could finish, Another voice cut in from beyond the depot. Don't dirty your hands on that two-bit rancher, Wallace. He ain't your friend. Surprised and a little angry, Neil looked around at the speaker who was seated in a buckboard at the edge of the platform. He was a big man, about as big as Neil, with the hard leanness of one who had spent much of his time in the saddle. There was a half-grin on his lips, but his eyes were cold. He had turned to the seat so that the pistol strapped to his right leg was handy to his draw, but he was making no move in that direction. Neil turned back toward Talbert, who was now staring at the ground, an angry flush in his cheeks. The other men wouldn't meet Neil's eyes, nor did they speak. Another thing Neil noticed was that they were all careful to keep their hands away from their guns. It was an odd situation, but one about which there was little he could do until he understood what was behind it. He stepped back to pick up his saddle, then walked over to confront the man in the buckboard. Get in, the man said. The boss is expecting you. His lips curled into a grin again. In case you've forgotten, King Wallace don't like to wait for people. Neil's anger mounted, but he held it in check. He tossed his gear in the back of the buckboard, and got in alongside the driver. The reins slapped against the horse's rumps, and the team headed up the short main street of Kingvale with its two rows of false-fronted frame buildings, all as badly in need of paint as the depot. At the end of town, the driver turned his head and grinned. Guess I should have told you, he said. I'm Flake Bridger, your old man's ramrod. He held out his hand, and Neil took it surprised at the sudden change of attitude. Don't like to be so blunt about it back there, Bridgers said, but I figured you wouldn't know the setup around here and I didn't want you making a mistake before you had a chance to find out. He turned to spit into the road. Them fellers back there at the depot, they all hate your guts. Hub Talbert, most of all. Neil looked at the foreman out of the corner of his eye. That's a funny thing now, he said with careful casualness. The only one of those men I remember is Talbert, and we never had any trouble that I recall. 
The foreman guided the buckboard expertly around a bend in the rutted road, then turned his head. You're a Wallace, ain't you? He frowned. Which makes me think, how come you was sitting with that Englishman when the train pulled in? His attitude was irritating, but Neil forced himself to answer calmly. We were just talking. Why? Is there any reason I shouldn't be sitting with Davenport? Bridger shrugged. That's between you and King, I was just asking. They rode in silence after that, Neil's mind working on the events of the last half hour. He had expected to find a certain amount of unpleasantness when he'd agreed to return to Wyoming, but nothing like this animosity between his father and the men at the depot. Even allowing for the fact that King Wallace had always been an unpredictable sort of man, a fact Neil had recognized early in life, Still, there had been no indication in those days that King's unruly nature would ever lead to anything like this. He glanced at Bridger without turning his head. This new ramrod, having him on the payroll, was a tip-off in itself. Neil had met gunslingers before, and he could recognize the look in Bridger's eyes. He rubbed his jaw thoughtfully. A man was a fool to come back to a situation like this especially when it meant leaving a good foreman's job in Kansas. On the other hand, could a man be expected to deny a dying mother's last request? And maybe his mother had been right after all. Maybe King Wallace still wanted him back on Warbird. Or maybe it was just a repentant woman's mistaken idea of how she could make up for deserting her husband and making him look like a fool in the eyes of his neighbors. At any rate, the promise had been made. Now he had to go through with it. Likely his father would be glad to send him packing, in which case all he would be out was a month's wages. The road they were traversing ran along the north side of New San Juan Creek, or rather, the northeast side, since the creek came through the valley on a slant, angling out of the mountains at the northwestern extremity of the valley, breaking clear of the foothills on Stubby Stubblefield's Box S. By squinting, Neil could see smoke rising from Stubby's place now, although it was several miles distant. Warbird Ranch, for which they were headed, was considerably closer, but the buildings of the home place would not be visible until they turned off the road and crossed the big hogback, which lay like a long, flat haystack almost the length of the valley. Actually, they were already on Warbird land, for King Wallace's boundary was New San Juan Creek and the road was mostly on his property. In earlier days, the creek had followed a different channel, one which took it on the other side of the hogback, the side on which Warbird's buildings lay. Later, however, a big rock slide on what was now Box S had buried the creek under tons of silt, forcing the water to find another channel, the one which it now followed. The original San Juan Creek was now known as Dry Creek and was overgrown with brush, although it still lay like a gash across the Warbird Range. Neil looked across the creek, recognizing the boundaries of the several small ranches which lay on the southerly side, each ranch with its land bordering the creek for a greater or smaller distance. They had already passed one small spread, which the Englishman had told him was now his, and were halfway past Will Turner's Broken Bow, which had been a second home to Neil. By the time the Warbird turned off, and began to ascent the gentle slope of the hogback. The horses slowed to a walk as they started up the hill. 
and Neil found himself watching a little eagerly for his first sight of Warbird. Then they topped the rise, and Bridger pulled the team to a halt. He turned to grin at Neil and said pleasantly, There she is, there's Warbird. It was hard to get used to the sudden changes in Bridger's attitude, but Neil didn't stop to think about it. He studied the buildings below him with interest, noting the new horse barn, the well-built corrals, and the rock bunkhouse. Bridger apparently saw the direction of his gaze. Your old man used to fight Indians from behind them rock walls, he remarked. Neil didn't answer. He was looking at the main house now, remembering how it had looked eight years ago. It was still as big and solid as ever, and as out of character here on the prairie as a steer in a ballroom, with its four massive white pillars and its upstairs balcony over the porch. Once it had looked like the master house on some southern plantation, with lace curtains in the windows and flowers around the four sides. Now it was just a big, empty-windowed monstrosity, still useful, but as unattractive as a dance hall girl who has outlived her good looks. Bridger flicked the lines and the buckboard rattled down the last stretch of road, soon rolling to a stop in front of the pillared porch. As Neil was about to step down, the front door opened and his father came out onto the porch, stopping at the top of the broad steps to stare at them coldly. King Wallace was still a powerful-looking man, his heavy shoulders straining at the seams of the brush jacket he was wearing. There was a touch of gray in what had once been jet-black hair, but he didn't look old. Neil waited for him to smile, but the hardness didn't leave his face. Don't stop here, he said bluntly. You'll be staying in the bunkhouse as long as you're around. He started to turn away, then swung around and added, After you've taken care of your gear, come back here. I want to see you. Neil had started to get up. Now he settled back on the seat and began to get angry. Then the humor of the situation struck him, and he turned to grin at Bridger. If I'd known how bad he wanted me back, he said dryly, I would have come a lot sooner. Bridger didn't appear to see anything funny about it. He wheeled the buckboard over in front of the bunkhouse, and Neil got his war bag out of the back, and they both went in together. Neil looked around at the two rows of bunks, then back at the foreman, who pointed at the farthest one in the left-hand row. That one ain't being used, he said. Help yourself, he yawned. Most of the crew is out on the range. You'll be seeing them tomorrow, likely. Speaking of the crew, Neil said. Are any of them still here from eight years ago? Bridger frowned. Just one, I guess. Corky Brill still draws warbird pay, although he ain't much good anymore. I reckon the old man lets him hang on just because he's been here so long. Neil was pleased that Corky was still around. He remembered when Corky had taught him to shoot a six-gun, back when Corky's peacemakers seemed to weigh a ton. He wondered what Bridger had meant about Corky not being much good anymore. Corky shouldn't be very old. I'll put your saddle in the barn, Bridger said, leaving the building. Thanks. Neil followed him out the door and cut across the yard toward the big house, disliking the prospect of meeting his father and yet somehow eager to see what would happen. He crossed the wide porch and opened the door, wondering grimly if he was expected to pull the bell cord. His boots echoed on the bare floor of the hallway, and he stopped to look around. 
a little shocked at what had happened. The wide stairs still curved to the upper floor, but every shred of carpet had been torn out, and there was no ornament of any kind to soften the effect. Yet everything seemed perfectly clean, as though someone still cared how the place looked. His father's voice startled him. Come back here, I'm waiting. Neil crossed the hallway and went into what had once been called the library. King Wallace was standing uncompromisingly in the center of the room, his hands at his sides, an unlighted cigar in his mouth. Shut the door. Neil closed the door behind him. All right, let's get this over with. King took the cigar from his mouth and flipped it toward a cuspidor, not bothering to notice whether it hit the target. There were several chairs in the room, but King showed no sign of sitting down, so Neil remained standing. Your mother wrote me, King said, biting off the words. She claimed to be dying, so maybe she was telling the truth for once. He shifted his weight irritably. Damn her soul, she lied to me enough. Neil stiffened. If you've brought me in here to listen to your opinion of my mother, it's a waste of time. This trip wasn't my idea in the first place. He started toward the door. Hold on. King raised one hand, halfway, then let it fall as though he regretted the gesture. All right, so it wasn't your idea. Well, it wasn't mine either. I guess you know that. I had a letter from your mother. She said she'd asked you to come back to Warbird. Neil nodded. Her letter was mailed after she died. Delight Dubois sent it to where I was working in Kansas. King frowned. That's a hell of a name. Who's this Dubois woman? He made an impatient gesture. Never mind. Anyway, you got the letter. What did it say? I've got it right here. Neil reached toward his shirt pocket. You're welcome to read it if you want to. No, King's voice was sharp. I don't want to see it. Just tell me what it says. All right. She said she wanted me to come back to Wyoming, that she realized she had done wrong in taking me away when she did, and that she was sorry. She said you had always wanted a son, and she'd rest better if she knew she'd sent me back. That's about all, I guess. The rancher turned and walked over to look out one of the windows for a moment, then came back to the center of the room. She wrote me pretty much the same thing. His eyes were bitter. Damn it, she makes me the laughing stock of the whole countryside and expects to straighten it all out with a couple of letters. He came a step closer, his eyes probing Neil's. I don't reckon you know what kind of hell I went through after you two left. I'd ride down the street in Kingvale, it was Horseshoe Bend then, and hear men laughing behind my back. There goes King Wallace, they'd say. Tries to make himself out to be somebody with that big house and all them cattle, but he can't even hang on to his woman. He turned aside and began stomping up and down the room as he talked. I showed him, by God, there ain't anybody that laughs at me now. The ones that did, they either left the country or they're dead. All that's left is the ones that hate me, and they don't laugh. He stopped pacing and faced Neil again. There ain't a business in town that I couldn't close if I wanted to, and I've got the law in my pocket. As far as these two-bit ranchers are concerned, I'm about ready for them, too. In another week, he paused for breath, his face flushed. By God, boy, he shuddered, then went on more calmly. Well, that ain't what I brought you in here for. What your mother said was right. I did want a son, and when you were born, it was the happiest day of my life. Then you began to grow up. 
and I could see that you'd be a big man someday, able to take things over when Warbird got too much for me. He looked Neil up and down. Even then, eight years ago, you'd started to fill out. I ain't a little man, and when you began shooting up, it made me happy, knowing you'd be tall and tough. Riding and roping seemed to come natural to you, and Corky told me you seemed to have the feel of a six-gun. But then your mother picked up and left while I was out on Roundup, taking you with her. Damn! He shook his head angrily. All right, you're back. From your looks, you've been doing all right. So it's likely you had to give up something to do what your mother asked you to. That being the case, you're welcome to stay, so long as you don't try to change me. There may be things I'm doing you won't be in favor of, but that's my concern. You'll draw top hands pay and take orders from Flake Bridger. He frowned. There's one more thing. You won't have any truck with the two-bit ranchers. They won't have any use for you anyway. But it wouldn't matter if they did. Stay away from them. Neil looked at his father, feeling a little sorry for him, and forgetting for a moment that King was being unreasonable, expecting him to hire on as an ordinary puncher. Something else bothered him more than this, something that had to be cleared up here and now. He met his father's eyes squarely. About those two-bit ranchers, he said. Does that include everybody, even Will Turner and the new man, Davenport? King nodded. Everybody. I used to think Will Turner had good sense, but he's as bad as the others. Well, not as bad, maybe. He's got guts enough to say to my face what the others say behind my back. I admire a man for that, even if he's wrong, but it won't help him any if he gets in my way. He banged a big fist into his palm. I tell you, boy, I'm going to run this territory the way I want it run, and to hell with anybody that tries to stop me. He looked up sharply. Who told you about Davenport? He's new since you left. Neil was thinking about Will Turner. It seemed impossible that he and King were enemies. He became aware that his father was waiting for an answer, and he said absently, We happen to be on the same train, so we talk some. He seems like a decent sort of man. Stay away from him. Neil shook his head. You better get this straight. I'll see anyone I want to, and I'll pick my own friends. If you got any objections, I can always catch the next train east. Maybe you run this valley, but you won't run me. Why, you damned... King Wallace cut off whatever he had been about to say and turned his head as if listening. He suddenly walked over to the window and looked out. When he turned back, he was loosening the gun in his holster and his eyes were shining. You wait here, he said. We ain't done talking, but I'll be busy for a few minutes. He started toward the hallway as Flake Bridger called from the front door. Here they come, boss. They look like they mean business. I see them. King stomped out into the hall, his boot heels echoing defiantly on the bare boards. Neil crossed to the window and looked out. Riding down the slope toward Warbird were about a dozen men. They all looked grim, and Will Turner riding in front was as grim as the rest. His leathery face a little more seamed than Neil remembered it, but otherwise unchanged. Beside Will rode Dutch Shortinghouse, a rancher Neil recalled faintly. One or two other faces looked familiar, including that of Hub Talbert, who was riding a few paces behind the others. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Shootout at Warbird. 
If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.